Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Any particular organizational structure contains the seeds of its own destruction. (laughs) But I think in general, it is quite useful to start out with a separate group of data scientists or whatever. And now the most successful companies don't just focus on data science. They focus on developing and implementing data products and monitoring them over time. It also makes sense to start to migrate aspects of that out into the organization and have it at least be made so that people are embedded into the business, maybe reporting as a dotted line back to some central structure to develop new skills and so on. And I've seen that evolution over time with analytics, and I think we'll see it with AI as well. Start out with a fully centralized group and then make it as pervasive as possible throughout the organization. Tom Davenport is the president's distinguished professor of information technology and management at Babson College. He is also a visiting professor at Oxford Said Business School, a fellow of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy, and a senior advisor to Deloitte's AI practice. He is a widely published author and speaker on the topics of AI, analytics, information, and knowledge management, re-engineering, enterprise systems, and electronic business. He's written or co-authored or edited 23 books, including the first books on business analytics, enterprise AI, business process re-engineering, knowledge management, attention management, and enterprise systems. He recently published Working with AI and Advanced Introduction to AI in Healthcare and just published an outstanding book, All In on AI, How Smart Companies Win Big with Artificial Intelligence. He's also written over 300 articles for such publications as Harvard Business Review, Slow Management Review, California Management Review, Financial Times, and many other publications, and has been a columnist for The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Information Week, and CIA. He has been named one of the world's top 25 consultants by Consulting Magazine, one of the 100 most influential people in the IT industry by Zip Davis Magazines, and one of the top 50 business school professors by Fortune Magazine. As you can tell, if you want to learn about AI and other related technologies, how they impact business, this is the person that you want to learn from. And we get a chance to do that here. This podcast, he shares how he thinks AI is going to transform businesses and sources of competitive advantage, how we can use AI to shape customer behavior, build new products, and create operational transformations. And five levels of analytical capabilities every organization fits into where yours might be and how to move it. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Davenport. Tom, thank you so much for being here with us. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I know many people who know you and know your work. I'm starting to become familiar with your work, and I'm very excited to get into the recent books that you published, your view on AI and technology. But first, to get us to know you a little bit personally, can you complete the sentence for me? If you really know me, you know that. I was once one of the world's leading authorities on the sociology of unreligious people. 
Huh. Is that through personal research or? That was what the focus of my dissertation was. And I did some other things too, but I was interested in the sociology of religion. And I wrote my dissertation on why people become unreligious and what difference it makes to their lives. Fascinating. Do people who become unreligious, do they replace religion with something else? The sociological theory would suggest that people who don't have religion to make their lives meaningful would get into all sorts of problems, but they don't generally. They seem to be doing fine. Why they become unreligious is more a function of their background and their gender. Men are much more likely to be unreligious than women. At the time I did this, there weren't very many of these people, but now in the United States, they're one of the largest religious categories out there. I think they've surpassed the Catholics, the nuns. They're often referred to as not Catholic nuns, but people who profess no religious faith. Wow, fascinating. We can get into that. Maybe technology and trusting AI and things maybe have solutions to religion. Before we get into work, I want to ask a second question, which asks all of our participants. I always get a different answer. You spent a lot of time in strategy. Was it McKinsey? Talk about technology strategy. What's your definition of strategy? Well, I'll give you my definition of I think of myself as more of an operations person. I remember there was a guy I worked with for a long time. He was a really smart guy. He was director of the census for a couple of administrations and head of market research for GM and Kodak and Xerox and so on. Anyway, he once signed one of his books to me saying to Tom Davenport, who's really good at once you figured out what you want to do, making it more effective and efficient. And so I guess I have internalized that a little bit. But for me, strategy is thinking at a high level about what business the organization is in and what goals it wants to accomplish and how do you go about that. But, you know, it's big thinking, thinking big thoughts, answering big questions. And then there are all sorts of ways that you can make that strategy strategy become a reality. You write a lot about how sources of competitive advantage shift with technology, with AI in particular. And I'm thinking when you said, what business are we in? That's sort of Peter Drucker's definition of strategy was the answer to the question, what business are we in? So how does the competitive advantage change with the adoption and evolution of AI? A number of organizations have found that AI enables entirely new business models for them, new ways of making money, new capabilities that they offer to their customers. And I don't think that many AI implementations are terribly strategic for the most part. I've worked a fair amount with Deloitte on surveys, and the surveys suggest that most AI use cases are oriented to kind of improving business processes or getting a little bit better at serving customers or whatever. But some companies, and that's the primary interest of mine and my most recent book, are really interested in transforming themselves, either transforming their strategy or their business model or major processes or the customer kinds of behaviors, I think is one category we don't typically think of. Okay. You laid out three categories. There's internal transformation, customer behaviors, processes, and then using analytics to create competitive advantages. I'm sure I'm getting that wrong, but how do you think about the different ways in which organizations are thinking about using AI? Because imagine a chief strategy officer, so many different conceptions of AI. And depending on what your leadership thinks it is for, they might envision it playing out differently. 
What are the ways in which companies think about it? Sure. And I'll give you some examples. So I think the new business models usage of AI is the most interesting one. And I think that's what a lot of the digital native companies have done. You know, those platform businesses, generally the Airbnbs and the Ubers and so on couldn't really exist without AI. And now a fair number of other more traditional companies have figured that out and they are also using AI to power new business models and they're sort of platform or ecosystem based for the most part. But that I think is the most interesting usage. Then there's operational transformation. And as I said, I think you can use AI for operational improvement, but if you do it on a really large scale and you totally transform the way you go to market or create products and services or whatever, then that to me is certainly quite strategic. And then the third one, you could argue that some digital native firms, particularly the social media companies, pioneered this idea of using AI to change customer behavior. For the most part, that didn't turn out so well. You know, it created division and polarization and that sort of thing. But there are now a fair number of companies who are trying to use AI for more constructive customer behavior changes, things like improving their health or improving their driving or something along those lines. And many of them are insurance companies who decided, well, rather than just pay customers when they die or get sick or have a car crash, maybe we could make them more healthy and successful individuals maybe have to pay a little less as a result. On a personal level, I've noticed that I become a poorer driver because my car nudges me a lot. And when I'm in a car that doesn't nudge me, I notice I'm veering off and I'm not paying as much attention. So AI is shaping my behavior as a driver. We thought that AI would take over our driving and it hasn't turned out to do that yet. We've been thinking it was right around the corner for 30 or 40 years and it's still right around the corner. But in our book, we talk about Toyota, which I think has more of a strategy of improving driving, particularly for young drivers who are bad and really old drivers who are bad. And it's sort of how do we make these relatively unsafe drivers much safer? I think that's turned out to be a better strategy than companies who said, no, we're going to get rid of drivers altogether. Right, right. You're using a case with Toyota here, but you use a lot of cases of large legacy, not digital native companies. And you argue that you don't have to be digital first to be an AI first or AI fueled or all in AI company. Yeah, that was the assumption behind the book. And I had always gravitated toward those companies. And I never really thought about why exactly, but I was interviewing someone who was the head of analytics and AI at Loblaws, the biggest Canadian grocery retailer. And he'd been at a number of companies. I've known him for quite a while. He's left there now. He's the head of analytics and AI at the National Football League. But I said, Paul, you know, why do you keep gravitating toward these jobs where you have to transform legacy companies. And he said, you know, it's a lot more interesting. <laughs> if everybody already believes that this stuff is powerful, then you know, it's just a matter of execution. So maybe that's why I gravitate toward it. As a sociologist, I'm interested in the organizational challenges and turning a company around. Yeah. If you could talk to me a little bit about those challenges, there's one gentleman that we both know, Pete Fader at Wharton, and he's been advocating for a long time, a focus on data to become 
become more customer centric the way that he defines it. But he keeps coming up against this human side, the cultural rejection, you know, the trusting of the data, willingness to change our processes, our approaches. I think it was kind of barriers and overcoming the barriers, but however you have approached it, what advice do you have to share? Well, certainly in this book, All In on AI is really the second in a series. And the first one was called Competing on Analytics. And it was about companies that compete on their analytical capabilities. And this one's about competing with your AI capabilities. And for better or worse, you don't find this happening without very committed senior management team and CEO. And there have been some conversions. I consulted for a few companies where initially the CEO was not very interested and he had kind of a midnight conversion. (laughs) I was working with Best Buy a while back and that sort of happened with the CEO. But in general, they get it or they don't and it's really hard to change it. And if they get it, then they devote all the resources necessary to make it happen and they promote and pay people well if they follow along with that logic and they try to make the culture move in that direction. It's not always permanent. One of my poster children in competing on analytics was Caesars at the time, I guess the world's largest gaming company. And Gary Loveman was the CEO. He's an old friend of mine, neighbor of mine, and he gave me a lot of access to what he was doing and he really transformed the culture. But when he left, it drifted back into the previous approach. So do you have any lessons from a company that has been able to make a shift? Or maybe there's a culture that doesn't need a shift, that had a culture that is receptive to these AI products and digital products. Who do you look to? There's one company that I talk about a fair amount in the book, and it's a little bit confusing because they keep changing their name. At the time we wrote about them, they were called Anthem, and now they're mostly called Elevance Health. And before Anthem, they were WellPoint. But it's a large health insurer, second largest in the U.S., I think. And they have just decided that they're going to become, you know, a platform for health and connect people to the right kinds of health information and treatments that they need and not really get into the business that some of their competitors are doing, including United Healthcare, the largest company in the U.S. in health insurance, which is to actually provide health services and hire a bunch of doctors and nurses and so on. They want to make that connection, just like a lot of these platform companies, and they think AI is a very critical resource in making that happen. And, you know, it's still early days. Who knows how long it will last? But it is a very traditional, it was a bunch of Blue Cross Blue Shield companies by background. And if they pull it off, I think it'll be a very amazing transformation. Certainly, we talk a fair amount in the book about Kroger, the largest retailer in the United States, which I don't think was historically known for its data orientation. But over the last decade or so, they've gotten much more oriented to that. And they bought the U.S. subsidiary of this company, Dunhumby, that established loyalty programs for Tesco and other grocers around the world. (laughs) They formed a wholly owned subsidiary called 84.51 Degrees, one of the more oddly named companies. The longitude of Cincinnati, Ohio, where they are based, because they say that they deal with longitudinal data. In that sector, they are by far the dominant user of analytics and AI and use it for loyalty and all sorts of logistical things, pricing, restocking, just quite amazing what they do. Got it. 
seems like the culture has to follow along some kind of evolution in the embracing of analytics and AI. I know that you at one point wrote a very influential article or series of articles about these three different levels of AI maturity or tech or data maturity, analytical maturity. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Generally, there are five. I think God decreed that in most of these capability and maturity models, you have to have five levels. So I decided I would comply. And level one, as you might imagine, is not very good at it. Level two is typically very siloed. And with analytics, people play around, but they don't view it as an enterprise resource and not strategic at all. And level three is where the management of the company starts to become aware that this might have strategic value and they start to invest, but it's still early days. And level four is sort of good, but not obsessed. (laughs) A number of banks I've found fell into this category where they try to be analytical about a lot of their decisions, but they don't really think of it as a basis for competition. And level five are the hardcore analytical competitors. And some of those have transferred their analytical focus into AI, capital one being the most obvious one. I focused a lot on them in my earlier work and they drifted a little bit for a while, but now they're very aggressive on AI as well and among the most aggressive banks. And they're still led by the founder, Rich Fairbank, who's a big believer in all this stuff. My guess is it's deeply ingrained enough at Capital One so that it will outlast the departure of the founder, but who knows? Can you give us an example of something, if it's Capital One or any other very aggressive level five companies, something that they do? I mean, Capital One has about a thousand different AI use cases. So one thing they do is they go very broad in their use of AI. And they also were very broad in their use of analytics. They used to say, oh, we do 60,000 controlled experiments a year. Even back in the mail order days, I'd send you a red envelope and then a blue envelope and see which you were more likely to respond to. Now, I think the most interesting thing about them is the level of human and technical infrastructure they try to build relative to AI. So they develop these quite extensive feature stores, you know, reusable variables, if you will, for machine learning capabilities to make it easier across the organization to do it. Last year, they planned to hire, I don't know exactly how many they hired, 5,000 machine learning engineers, which is really quite amazing as an objective. And I know they developed a really extensive training program as well. So they're past the point of, gee, AI is great. Let's build a few applications. They're really quite serious about it as an enterprise strategic capability. In organizations that you feel are going to be able to get there to that level five, and they think about building the capabilities, recruiting the team, where do they sit? What's the organizational structure? Like, for example, I did a little talk for this retirement fund manager. They had a whole AI organization, but it was embedded inside a company. It was like a community rather than having any kind of reporting structure. But I've seen others where AI might sit inside strategy or marketing. What do you see works? Yeah, you know, I always say any particular organizational structure contains the seeds of its own destruction. (laughs) But I think in general, it is quite useful to start out with a separate group of data scientists or whatever. And now the most successful companies don't just focus on data science, they focus on developing and implementing data products and monitoring them over time. It also makes sense to start to migrate aspects of that out into the organization and have it 
at least be matrixed so that people are embedded into the business, maybe reporting as a dotted line back to some central structure to develop new skills and so on. And I've seen that evolution over time with analytics, and I think we'll see it with AI as well. Start out with a fully centralized group and then make it as pervasive as possible throughout the organization. That makes sense. You can see that trajectory with other types of roles that have matured. That makes sense. So I've got a long list of questions here, and I've got other questions that come up. We don't have, unfortunately, time to ask everything. So I'm going to ask one practical question, which is, is there a particular model or framework? It could be your own or it could be some someone else's that you found particularly helpful that you'd like to share with us? Well, you know, my new book's not quite even out yet. It'll be out later this month. So I'm not known for anything in that yet. But in the analytics space, I developed a model. My first book on computing and analytics, it was a much more successful book than I ever anticipated. But I didn't really think about it in terms of, you know, a single framework. But after it, people would say, can't you come up with something memorable rather than these factors that make companies more analytical? So I developed the Delta model, which at the time, stood for data. It's always good to have data if you're going to do analytics or AI. Enterprise orientation, that's the E. L for leadership. T for targets, which are where do you focus your efforts. And A for analysts. I have not come up with a similar sort of acronym for AI. Yeah, Delta worked really well. Every language, there was the word Delta. Occasionally got confused with the airline or whatever, but it was great. But I think those are similar factors. And with AI, and I discovered this in the latter days of analytics, you really have to have some factors related to technology. In the early days of analytics, everybody was using data warehouses and statistics packages, and it wasn't really that much of an issue. But now I think having a really strong technology infrastructure is important. So using a leading edge method. So unfortunately, it sort of makes the Delta model a bit more complex, but that's necessary these days, I think. It just hearing and it seems like a very comprehensive checklist of levels. And I could see without the model that people might just focus on one and forget the other four. Well, again, I had so many other questions, but we were just scratching the surface. How can people who want to learn more connect with you and learn from you? Certainly working with AI, all in an advanced introduction to AI and healthcare, your work will encourage them to find in your new book. But how can people learn from you and connect? I have the usual methods. I have a webpage, TomDavenport.com. I have all my stuff on LinkedIn. I write for Forbes. I think I've written more than any living individual in Harvard Business Review. Over 218 articles. So I'm there a lot. MIT Sloan Management Review. I write for those practitioner-oriented places as much as possible. And I have done some sort of educational things with Section 4 and some other education-oriented providers. So teaching mostly analytics and a little bit of AI in those two. Well, thank you for doing all of that, for all the work you do, for sharing it with us and packaging and making it accessible for the rest of us. Spend some time with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for helping me distribute the ideas. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers. Outthinkers.